Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to The Harder Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Anne Nelson, the author of Codename Suzette, an extraordinary story of resistance and rescue in Nazi Paris and the author of Shadow Network, Media Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, both of which are available to purchase now. Anne Nelson, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. You've done a lot of research into those in positions of power and the impact that they have had behind the scenes on politics, policy, the world that is shaped around us. What made you want to take that leap? Because it's quite a brave step to go up against these powerful figures in the shadows. Well, it's actually coming full circle for me because I began my uh, career as a war correspondent in El Salvador and Guatemala, where um, I did work for the BBC and Canadian media and some U.S. outlets. So I was really living under some very brutal authoritarian governments and looking at how they operated looking at who was supporting them, and then seeing how resistance networks were formed. I was in my 20s, so there was a lot that was obscured to me. But then in the meantime, I went into a career of working in human rights documentation at Human Rights Watch, where I was one of the first staff members, and then academia, and writing about World War II resistance movements in Berlin and Paris, well, then 2016 happened in the United States, and as uh, the British would say, we were gobsmacked. Um, and I just took those research skills and turned them back to apply to my own country. So a lot of these, these functions are replicated in historical cycles. And uh, Shadow Network is, I think, looking at the machinery of how authoritarian principles can be used to manipulate an electorate. You mentioned the similarities there that can occur between what's happening now and historical comparisons. Do you see there as being lessons that we can learn from looking back at previous resistance movements in how we approach the challenges that we issue to those in control at the moment? Well, I, I don't usually like to apply the word resistance to what's going on now, because if you look at Codename Suzette, my book about Occupied Paris, people in the resistance were operating illegally, according to the Nazi-imposed legal system, at great risk to their lives. And what I see now is that in a lot of Western democracies, the U.S. and the U.K. included, is that citizens have become fairly passive about politics and dark forces have used that passivity to organize quasi-legal manipulations against them. So what is required is not 
life threatening at this point. It just involves greater civic engagement and uh, uh, more attention to strategy. So I, I, I call this, you know, uh, uh, attending to your civic duty rather than resistance. Well, the main focus of your book, Shadow Network, is obviously the Council for National Policy, which people might not be familiar with that organization and its name, but they'll certainly be familiar with the people who've been associated with it. How did a group like the Council for National Policy become what it is today? Because it didn't just appear one day out of thin air. There's been a lot of groundwork that's gone into this. Well, uh, I think that it goes back to your previous question, which is how do you take power in a government that has democratic structures? And uh, one is the gradual erosion of the rule of law through quasi-legal approaches. So, so you gradually change the laws at different levels of government. So in terms of the Council for National Policy, the, the beginnings of it go back to the civil rights movement when the courts, including the Supreme Court, were, were, were liberalizing uh, society and expanding the political and civil rights of not only African Americans, but also women and immigrants and others. And there was a backlash in a part of the country that was not on board. And as it happens, I grew up in this part of the country. My home state is Oklahoma. <clears throat> but you had fundamentalist religious figures, such as Jerry Falwell, uh, Pat Robertson, and others, who promoted a culture of segregation and, in fact, had a big revenue stream from their own segregated schools and so on. And they were looking for ways to push back against these laws uh, they realized that they could get behind a candidate like uh, Ronald Reagan in 1980 and find niches where they could move into the federal government and use it to expand their power. And they formed a kind of umbrella group in 1981 called the Council for National Policy. What was important about it was that it brought together people with big money, and we're talking about the DeVos family uh, in Michigan, as in Betsy DeVos, a big oil in interests, including oil uh, barons from Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, it brought together political operatives like Richard Vigory. And then it, it, it also added this dimension of media and overlooked parts of the media, such as radio, uh, which is surprisingly powerful. And fundamentalist television, like the Christian Broadcasting Network, which, which reaches a million, hundred million people. Uh, and if these parts all worked in concert, it, it vastly expanded their influence and became a major factor in bringing Trump to power 40 years later. You touched on the changes that have occurred in the U.S. media landscape over recent years. And that has been, as you talk about in the book, fueled by groups like the Council for National Policy, those that are in powerful positions wanting to exert their control. How concerned should we all be by what's going on here? Because you highlight the issue of misinformation that's put out there and these clickbait headlines that we've all gotten used to seeing that don't tell the, the true story. 
So how deeply concerning should this be and how should we be addressing it? Well, I, I am a believer in engagement. And uh, I think that, that in, in, you know, in a lot of Western democracies, there's been kind of a, a stratification between you know, a certain more educated band of the population, which has been doing fairly well under this economy, and less educated, more formerly blue-collar or agricultural bands. Um, and, and the reason that, that people believe the lies – is because the connections of communication and mutual support have, have been frayed and in some cases broken. So I, I, I think that, that really for not just the news media and the political culture, but for anyone who's, who is engaged civically, reestablishing those bonds of solidarity in society are, are absolutely critical. Um, so in the United States, I, I think that's going to mean finding ways to canvas and communicate and to engage on social media across these boundaries. And that's, that's starting to happen. Um, but I think that setting up new communication systems that dis, that, that, that really counter the lies and replace it with, with fact, factual information and scientifically based information will be really important. So in the United States, we've got the whole you know, myth about about abortion and the Democrats policy on abortion um, in Britain with Brexit. You had an entire myth about what Brexit would mean for funding for the National Health Service, uh, where it was just not true. And you have the same organizations using the same data platforms, using the same apps, promulgating these myths to people who are now more and more cut off from professional journalism and corrective measures. I, you know, this is a long-term issue. And if the United States survives as a democracy past November, I predict that there will be some people who will have to sit down at the drawing board and say, we allowed these critical institutions of democracy to, to uh, falter, and we've got to find new business models and new revenue streams to support them. Because without... Factual information, democracy can't survive. Given that this was something that didn't happen overnight, politics in the U.S. and the changes that occurred there, politics in the U.K. and changes that have occurred there and in similar countries around the world, these weren't changes that just happened in one election cycle. They've been decades in the making, and Shadow Network highlights this issue, how the changes were 40-odd years of work to get to this position. What do you say to people who agree with you on what needs to be done, but just feel so much despair and say, well, this has taken 40 years to get to this place. How on earth do we unravel all of this now? Well, I have two responses to that. And the first one is that uh, the truth is actually on their side. So in the United States, for example, public opinion substantially uh, supports, for example, background checks on gun control. And the NRA, the National Rifle Association, which is, uh, is part of the Council for National Policy, uh, has managed to manipulate state legal systems to get gun laws in place 
that that are actually unpopular on a national level. Uh, same thing. Most Americans, in terms of public opinion, support access to to some forms of abortion. Uh, but the messaging has been pushed against them. Um, so on, on issue after issue, the Council for National Policy and the radical right of the Republicans do not have the support of the American people. And that becomes a matter of, of just getting information to low-information voters and helping them focus on political issues that affect their daily lives, such as access to health care, and uh, the Affordable Care Act, which is very popular, public education, which parents obviously care about, uh, and kind of move the spotlight away from these false claims about abortion onto matters that affect them. The second point I'd make to those people is that uh, they could they could think about history. And as I said, my last two books were about the anti-Nazi resistance in Germany and France, where people were risking their lives on a daily basis and in many cases sacrificing their lives to restore some hope of democracy in the, to their country in the future. And it seems a little weak-willed or lily-livered to say, oh, it's so hopeless, uh, these other people have a 40-year leap on us, but we've got all of these instruments of democracy, such as the media, such as the, the electoral process, at our disposal, but we've been a little bit too passive to use them. And it's like, well, then if you end up with a government that represses you, that's what you've earned. One of the ways to shine a light on issues that exist and to draw attention to the policy people should be focusing on is obviously social media, and it's something you mentioned a few moments ago. But at the same time, social media platforms that we're all familiar with are owned by a very small number of incredibly wealthy individuals, similar individuals to those that have been behind organizations like the ones that you sought to highlight and bring out of the shadows. Is that something that we should be equally concerned about? Because the reliance on social media is so great now the the way in which it's controlled and the way in which those corporations uh, allow those platforms to develop ha has a massive impact. Uh, well, we should definitely be concerned about social media regulation. Um, now, 25 years ago, I began teaching at the Columbia School of Journalism and was watching as digital media was moving into the field and there was just so much that we didn't understand and we didn't foresee. And I agree that big tech needs a lot of oversight. And even people inside these companies are beginning to look beyond their enormous profits to say, well, yeah, maybe we need to have more uh, engagement on this in, in the social, social impact of our product. So you see in Twitter, for example, uh, Jack Dorsey, and he is starting to challenge Trump's tweets if they are not factual or if they are incitements to violence. So I think he's kind of out ahead of the others in that respect. You have Facebook starting to exert more oversight over content. And, of course, right now in this political campaign, 
we've got some very bad actors who are uh, addressing the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, with some some uh, very uh, false and dangerous memes that have been circulating. And, and I think that there's an attempt to have more control over them. Um, so, so I don't see big tech as a permanent, definitely negative force in this. I, I, I think that there'll be a need to be a big conversation moving forward. I think the Germans in their regulation of social media are, have thought this out uh, more actively than the U.S. and the U.K. have. Uh, and I'm not saying they've done everything right, but I think that they've been more engaged with it. And in fact, with the, the measures of, of control of content that you have in Twitter and now beginning on Facebook, what's happened is that the radical right has been trying to create an alternate universe of social media through their apps. And what they do is get their, their supporters to download the app and it serves a kind of purpose of Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, except that it's all their own curated propagandistic content. So that's that's the logic to the new Trump 2020 app, for example. And it's telling them actively, stay off Twitter, stay off Facebook, because you might see ideas that we don't agree with. Stay here in the silo where everything is reinforced. That's one of the issues that people highlighted after 2016, individuals who ended up in their own bubbles. And we see that with individuals who were questioned at Trump rallies, for example, who talk about the issue currently of coronavirus, and they will parrot the exact same comments that have been made by Donald Trump and his, members of his administration about what's going on. When you've got a, a division that exists that's being pushed by individuals who, like the Trump campaign, want to have these apps that, that draw people into further and further into their own silos. Is there a way to bring people back from that position? Or, or is it something where we have to say that you can't just make small alteration here or small alteration there? You have to make the giant wholesale changes that got us to this position. Well, uh, I, I think it's really tragic. Uh, and again, as a, a native of Oklahoma, it just broke my heart to see those interviews with people in Tulsa attending the rally without a mask, without believing in distancing. And it's at a time when Corona is spiking in Tulsa and the entire state of Oklahoma, including the town where my elderly parents live. And I hold the Trump administration directly responsible for their their ignorance and misinformation, which will cost lives. I, 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 it just, it's just heartbreaking. Um, that said, I've seen research recently that looks at swing states and divides them up. First of all, looking at evangelicals and fundamentalist populations. Second of all, looking at their news source. So you'll find that there's kind of a hard core of Trump support um, among them, which is still less than half. 
but is probably totally unpersuadable because most of their news is from Fox News and this parallel universe of social media. Uh, so, so they're going to vote for Trump. They're probably going to live in the world without masks where they're running a greater risk of the virus. But there's probably no way to reach them in the short term. There is another population that has, uh, that accesses more professionally produced information, such as National Public Radio and PBS. And they're probably not going to vote for Trump. And they're probably going to wear masks because that's what their news organizations tell them to do. In the middle, you've got people who look at network television, ABC, CBS, and NBC, where they appear to be the persuadable population. They voted for Trump for various reasons. One of them was abortion. One of them was because they felt that they wanted their people on the Supreme Court for the new appointments. But they're increasingly uncomfortable with where this all is going. And they're having grave doubts. Uh, maybe their religious communities are telling them that, that, you know, to vote for a Democrat is to vote for a demon. That's what some of the radio broadcasts literally say. Democrats are demons. Uh, but they may be more educated and uh, have more critical thinking going. So I think that, you know, we only have, what, 130-something days till the election in November. A lot's going to happen. And it is bizarre, but 100,000 votes in a very few swing states are going to determine our collective future. Most of the Council for National Policy supported Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio in the 2016 Republican primary. But they fell in line behind Donald Trump because they disapproved of Hillary Clinton. This potentially touched on one of the issues you've raised about drawing people's attention back to the issues that matter and the policy issues that we should be focusing on. Because Republicans, whatever happens, tend to rally around the candidate that they're presented with at the ballot box, whereas Democratic individuals will debate the substance and the ideological differences with candidates right up until the moment that the election occurs and potentially even beyond that. Is this why Republicans and those on the right have been able to secure the changes that they have in the political landscape? Because they have just gotten in line with what the people on their side have told them needs to be done at each and every political stage. Yeah, I have to say that in the course of doing the research for Shadow Network, I got a very different vision of American politics than I had before. And I commissioned uh, someone to design a pie chart of the American electorate, which is in the visuals of the book. Uh, and what it shows is that of the eligible voters in the United States, Let's say 27% give or take are going to vote for a Republican no matter what. 27% give or take are going to vote for a Democrat. Maybe 3 or 5% are going to be swing voters. And then you've got a big chunk who are registered to vote but don't vote. And then there's another chunk who are not registered but could be registered and could vote. So there's some – there's always been a lot of discussion of who the swing voters are. But the real strategy of the Council for National Policy activists 
was to identify unengaged blocks of evangelical voters, 18 million to be precise, and to use their churches to pressure them to register and to vote for their radical right candidates. They go right into the church sanctuaries. They hand out voter guides in the church bulletins. They project these videos in the church sanctuary. And then they also download the church directories and match them against voter files and see which voters they can propel to the polls as likely Republican voters and which voters they should downplay as likely Democratic voters. So this was very, very targeted, and they had the swing states absolutely in mind. They, they really understood that the Democrats could win the popular vote, as Hillary Clinton did by some 3 million votes uh, in, in the Democratic urban coastal areas. But if they worked these specific populations in the swing states, they could win the Electoral College. And that's what they did in 2016 by 100,000 votes. So what you have is just this reinforcement of this strategy time and time again. Now, historically, you're dealing with, with some interesting phenomena here. You've got the Reagan Democrats, people who were traditionally Democrat, but they just went for Reagan in 1980, and the Republican Party built on that and consolidated that on that. Some of those went back to Obama in 2008. So it's not like a rock-solid constituency there. Um, so, so again, Shadow Network really looks at, at these mechanics and, and the underlying story that most journalists are too busy to attend to. And it also, I, I think, talks about some pretty colorful personalities along the way. <laughs> Those personalities, as we touched on, are key figures that exist still in politics. And Shadow Network looks at that one group in particular. But there are others out there that follow similar patterns. We see the Koch brothers, for example, as being massively impacting on the American political scene. How should the Democratic Party be looking at building up their own support base? Should they be trying to find those on the left who are sort of left-wing billionaires who can form their own position? Do they have to try and just play this game fairly rather than seeking to challenge Republicans and those on the right at their own game? What should the Democratic Party's solution be? Well, uh, if, if I were advising the Democratic Party, which nobody's asked me to do, um, I, I think that what I see as a big institutional advantage of the radical right in the Republicans is that they've got a massive data platform, they've got the apps, and these have been connected in a very effective way to grassroots organizations who do canvassing on the ground. And then they work with established institutions such as these churches. I mean, Trump is, is, is now going to a mega church in Arizona uh, without masks, without distancing. Uh, Arizona is one of the six crucial swing states. So this is not in any way coincidental. And the idea is that you, you go to one of these mega churches, you get them all to download their new app, then it accesses their cell phone directories, and then you build out this base of support where you're messaging them constantly on their cell phone all the way into the election. Uh, so 
in a competitive way, the Democrats have an excellent database, but it has not been shared as effectively across state lines. It hasn't been as effectively networked on a statewide basis. Uh, it hasn't been made accessible to local and state-level Democratic candidates uh, and hasn't been made as accessible as cheaply. And it hasn't been networked into these canvassing operations in the past. Uh, so, uh, you know, doing that seems obvious. I know that there are people who hold their nose at the idea of the role of digital campaign tools, but right now they've been used effectively. They're in action. If they were illegal, they would have been stopped. If they're not illegal, they probably shouldn't be benefiting one side at the expense of the other side. Uh, there's something called relational organizing, which is used in many different fields that, that is, is just part of the picture right now. Do we want to regulate digital campaign tools in the future? Probably, because there's a lot of, of access to data and sharing of data that is not good for the citizenry. But that process can't happen before November. It just can't. Um, so, so the other piece of advice I'd have for Democrats is stop looking at national polls because the numbers I'm seeing are that Biden could win the national election by anywhere from five to 10 million votes. And he could still lose the electoral college if they don't focus on the swing states. And these are really consolidating into the northern states of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and the southern states of North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. And that's, those really, those states are where the future will be decided. Uh, and I, you know, I kind of look at <laughs> fondly at activists, you know, holding tables on in, in New York cities and, and think, well, that's, that's nice for you. But New York's going to go Democratic no matter what, so don't waste your time. And Nebraska's going to go Republican no matter what, so forget about it. But these swing states are absolutely critical, and you have to figure out how to talk to them. Finally, what do you hope that people will take away from the book and from the work that you've been doing into organizations like the Council for National Policy and others that are similar to it? I would like people to find in Shadow Network, uh, as I said, it shines a light on the mechanics that have been subverting our democracy for decades. And they're very clever mechanics. Uh, and, and one thing that really irritates me is when people underestimate them. You know, they think that if somebody has a southern accent, they're stupid. That is far from the case. These people have studied how the U.S. electoral system works with great, great detail and implemented a long-term strategy. So in terms of the field of play, they've, they've earned some of these victories. And the Democrats have, have, have often taken people for granted and fallen in love with some of their own rhetoric and slogans without looking at who's voting and how and where. So this has led us to a bad place. We have faced a gradual and accelerating erosion of the rule of law. 
We're seeing it with the Department of Justice. We're seeing it with, with the district attorneys. We're seeing it on many, many fronts. This is very dangerous. We're seeing the erosion of a public health system that is costing over, at this point, over 120,000 lives, where people are not getting a coordinated response. They're not getting correct information. It, we're paying a terrible toll for being asleep at the wheel for this. So if people can look at the mechanics and counter them with both local and, and, and action and, and corresponding to other voters, other citizens in other parts of the country, I think that there's a hope of, of rescuing our, our future for, for ourselves and for our children. Anne Nelson, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Ed. That was Anne Nelson, the author of Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, and codenamed Suzette, an extraordinary story of resistance and rescue in Nazi Paris, both of which are available to purchase now. You can find out more about her on Twitter at anelsona or at anne-nelson.com. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon, Carolyn, Colin, Ibalashnikov, Janet, Jesse, Merrily, and Nikki, who helped make this show even better. Until next time, goodbye.